Well, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're talking about recovery and spirituality, and today we are honored to have a couple of special guests. They've certainly been special in my life, and I've got Dr. George Haymack and Dr. Kathleen Keenan on our podcast today. And I am so grateful for both of you being here. Thank you for doing this. And I wanted you to take just a few minutes and introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, maybe give us your a little bit about your your story, where you're from, your background, education, career. Kind of just give people you know a quick version of your background. Why don't you start, Dr. Haymack, and then we'll go to uh, Dr. Kathleen Keenan. Okay, great. So I'm uh, I'm George Haymack. Um, my my life story, like many people's story, uh, includes many different occupations. So I didn't start off becoming an addiction medicine physician. In fact, if I had been asked, I would have said, "You've got to be kidding." Um, I uh, was trained as a chemical engineer. I uh, was a professor of chemical engineering uh, after finishing a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, wound up going into the service um, and then having interest in the biologic effects in engineering, um, got into medicine, went to medical school in Philadelphia and uh, became an internist and did specialty training in pulmonary and critical care medicine at WashU and St. Louis and uh, practiced for over 20 years in the Pittsburgh uh, Pennsylvania area. Um, in the late 90s, my wife made a decision for me, uh, as many of my effects are, and uh, suggested that maybe working six days a week, 16 hours a day was not compatible with uh, having a wife and family. I got the message um, and uh, went back, got an MBA and became a uh, a senior medical director uh, in the hospital in Kansas City and then uh, uh, chief medical officer and uh, moved on from there. Um, part of my job was working with um, people who had substance abuse. Um, they were called impaired physicians. I didn't know what an impaired physician was. And uh, I suddenly learned about alcohol and drug abuse and abuse and so forth. And, um, you know, I never thought that is anything that I should be involved with. And the long and short of it, after doing five years, I was offered, uh, sort of siphoned into a position as a medical director for the Physicians Health Program for the state of Missouri, an independent organization dealing with physicians who have substance abuse behavioral issues. Um, I had done it for five years. I didn't think I was competent. And uh, here I am, uh, some almost 20 years later, um, and uh, no longer with the Physicians Health Program, but now board certified in addiction medicine, uh, and um, have been doing that for, as I say, about 20 years. Um, and uh, that's when I met Kathleen Keenan. So that's how I got into addiction medicine. It was sort of the back door to white round. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Keenan, why don't you give us a little bit of your background and career? Okay. 
Well, I'm originally from California and I started out as a teacher and I had a, a midlife crisis around 40 and um, I'd been in therapy and the whole time I was in therapy, I just thought it was the neatest thing. And I thought, wouldn't this be fun to do? And um, as I said, I went through a crisis and, and was wanting to change my life. And um, and my spiritual life had a lot to do with it. After a period of prayer and meditating and contemplating, I... I just realized I'm going to be a psychologist and I dashed down to the local university and enrolled and uh, eventually uh, got my PhD and it's, and it's just been wonderful. Um, I did not start off in addiction medicine. My originally, my um, interest was in mind body medicine how the mind affects illness and how illness affects the emotions. And um, when I was working in a behavioral pain management program, I happened to be working with the gentleman who founded the Missouri Physicians Health Program. He was an anesthesiologist who noticed that so many of his uh, colleagues um, had problems with addiction and he wanted to do something to help them. So he he worked with the Missouri Medical Association to start the Missouri Physicians Health Program. And he said to me, I want you to be one of our therapists. I want you to be working in, in this program. So I started doing that. And um, as George said, most of the um, physicians that were sent to me did have problems with addiction. Some of them uh, were behavioral problems, but most of them had addiction. And um, that is something that I had to um, get study up on real quick. And, and through that program, I met George. And um, um, George and I hit it off and have both been very passionate about helping people with addiction. And um, as you know, we now do a group and see people individually and my, it, it, that's how it's taken its turn. Yes, thank you. Um, so you two met and started working together how many years ago? Mm, 12, 15. Yeah. yeah, about that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so neither one of you really came to the addiction world from either family, firsthand experience, or or any kind of addiction issues yourselves. You your career path kind of just ended up connecting you with that world. Is that, am I understanding you right? Both of you kind of got there through your career path. I, I come from a long line of addicts. Okay. Um, I have lots of mostly alcoholics in my family. And frankly, all that experience made me originally think I want nothing to do with it. Okay. But God has a sense of humor. <laughs> right. So here I am. Yeah. How about you, George? Yeah. I, I, uh, I've told Kathleen this, you know, I knew nothing about, uh, except grandma always had a funny smell about her. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, she was always happier than I thought she should be in certain times. 
uh, it was only after she passed away that we discovered these small little bottles of uh, what turned out to be vodka in various places in the kitchen. Um, but, you know, I come from a German-Irish ancestry where uh, as one of my uh, physicians in the program has said, uh, I'm not, you know, I don't have an alcohol abuse issue. I'm German-Irish, um, which is to say every time the family got together for any experience whatsoever, there was always alcohol uh, in great abundance. Um, and the fact that Uncle Harry died of cirrhosis and grandma was a lush. Um, so I, you know, there's, there's much like Kathleen, there's no, uh, there's certainly enough in my family history as well. And I think if I remember you saying you didn't, it wasn't something you would have wanted. Like you, in, no, in your early, before not. you started working with addicts, you weren't thinking, oh, I'd really like to work with addicts. No. In fact, <laughs> my, my true confession, Kathleen yeah. uh, has also heard this, is that, um, you know, when I was in practice as a pulmonary critical care physician, the one group of patients I detested working with were alcoholics and drug addicts because they all lied. They didn't do what you asked them to do. They were all surreptitious about everything they did. And, you know, as a pretty rigid engineering guy, uh, that really freaked me out. And I just didn't want to deal with them at all. And I have looked back now in, you know, in, in my latter years and recognized that the Holy Spirit said, you know, George, you are so much better than those people. <laughs> so so, so you, you will have the opportunity in your latter life to spend all of your time with addicts and, and, and alcoholics and see what it's like. I mean, I, I truly believe that may be, that may be his sense of humor because I, I had not only no interest in this, I really did not like dealing with these people. Um, and, you know, what I've come to understand is what wonderful people they are. They're like, they're like me. They just have issues and problems. They have a disease. Hello, they have a disease. Um, and Kathleen and I joke about this all the time because, you know, you don't worry about some, you don't say, Fred, do you have a cholesterol problem? I mean, is your HDL really a little low? Um, on the other hand, if people have an alcohol or a drug problem, they feel so much shame. So it is a disease. It, it's not, and that's just not spinning things. That's true. Wow. Thank you. Well, I'm so your early experience was almost with physicians exclusively, like your your first yes. several years into this, mm -hmm. were in, with physicians. I and I do think there's still a bit of a stigma with addiction, with alcoholism, and I think that when people think of physicians, or like in my own case, people think of clergy. We think of people who are sometimes above that, superhuman, all that kind of stuff, and they would never have these kind of problems. But in your experience, your initial work were with a group of people that a lot of folks out there, I think, wouldn't, wouldn't imagine that there would be enough people that are physicians that have addiction that would create a, a life work around that. Yeah, I, I, I never had any idea. Um, and, you know, it's another thing that Dr. Keenan and I have talked about 
you know, the numbers which are reproducible suggest that 10 to 15 percent of physicians across the board during their lifetime of working will have an alcohol, drug, sex, gambling issue that will interfere with their quality of life. Um, and I think that's the key thing. It's not just that they'll have a problem, but that it'll raise itself to the point where it interferes with their quality of life. Well, one thing that working with physicians will help you realize, if you don't didn't already, is that um, being an addict has nothing to do with how smart you are. Absolutely. Because these people are very, very smart, and they still have mm-hmm. can't control this addiction. Right. One of the phrases I heard when I uh, first got into the recovery world was, "Your best thinking got you here." Mm-hmm. And I always thought I was a pretty good thinker, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, an addiction does something that um, I like to refer to as uh, gives you something called hijacked brain. And the fact of the matter is that it will, it will completely hijack your higher order thinking. So instead of, um, being rational and reasonable, your your higher order thinking will, it, you use all your IQ points to rationalize what the addiction wants you to do. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. So the more, the more intelligent you are, the better you are at lying, manipulating, making excuses, coming up with rationalizations. It's, it's. Yeah. yeah. And, and the stories I could tell you about how physicians sneak around and learn to cheat. I mean, they're they're hilarious in in the dark side. I mean, um, but of course it is because physicians are pretty sneaky people when we don't want to be caught. And so I think with that intelligence factor with physicians and other people like that in addiction, you you don't want to admit that something beat you or defeat you defeated you or that you can't think your way out of it. I mean, that's a part of our, our best thinking got us in a lot of good places with our careers, but then we can't think our way out of our addiction. You know, that's it's kind of a crazy, ironic sort of thing that we have to admit. That's right. Um. I, I think that's why the first step is you. we admitted we were powerless because the thinking just doesn't work. I think the more reliant a person is on their intelligence, the more it's um, a big part of who they are, like physicians, you know, mm-hmm. and the more they rely on it, the harder it is for them to realize that they can't think their way out of this addiction. Right. Harder, to, harder for them to give up. Well, at some point you guys um, expanded your network of working with addicts to other people other than physicians. And I don't know at what point you expanded the people you're working with, but I met both of you a little over a year ago. And so George and I had a common friend that Mm -hmm. introduced me uh, to George and we sat down and talked and got to know each other. And then he invited me into one of the group therapies that you do together. 
And that was over a year ago now, which was hard to believe. That, that it time, is hard to believe. Time seems to have gone fast. But, but yeah, why don't you uh, explain how you began to expand that, that circle of influence that the two of you were doing to outside the physician group? How did you end up starting the group therapy sessions? Give us a little insight into that. You go for it, George. <laughs> you know, um, what happens is when you're working with physicians or for that matter, any professional, they say, I have a friend who, um, followed by, listen, um, this is a difficult topic, but my son has been using or um, my neighbor next door, uh, they have a problem with their daughter who, and the next thing you know is you're involved with uh, lots of people from different walks of life. Um, and, you know, frankly, I can't say no. Um, if, if somebody has a problem, you know, I, I call up my psychologist and, uh, you know, they all need to see Kathleen Keenan. Uh, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but, you know, uh, when we have uh, adolescents, um, you know, I, I call a colleague of mine, Michelle Kylo, who's an expert in dealing with that. So, um, you know, I don't do therapy. I know I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Uh, you got to know what your limits are. I, I really act as a mentor and guide for people, um, and I also monitor uh, their addiction. But, you know, most of the hard lifting is the lady that's on the screen with me um, because she needs to deal with the, the causes of the addiction um, and, and how this, you know, thing got hold of people's lives. Well, I think you're being very modest, but um, I think we make a good team. I, I deal with the, the psychological part of it, and, and he deals with the, um, the monitoring and the, the recovery piece, making sure that people go to meetings, that they're following their program, that they're, um, if, if necessary, they're being urine tested and um, and getting to the right doctors and getting the right medical help and all of that part of it. And those are, those are all necessary pieces. And, and Kathleen has had a huge practice of, of not just physicians, but of other yeah, professionals right. and other type people. So mm -hmm. for her, it was just part and parcel. And you know, I think what you find is when you start working with people, and, and correct me, Kathleen, when you start working with people and you peel off the layers, you find out about, you know, the fact that they, they've been having three or four drinks a night. Um, you know, I, I, I tell the story of a, of, a, of a radiologist that I was seeing who was having behavioral issues that were just untenable in the hospital. And the hospital called us in to see him. And when I sat down with him and we went through his issues, um, he casually mentioned that he and his wife 
had four to five bottles of wine a night. I mean, it was like he was saying, I fill my tank with a half a, you know, with a half a gallon of gas. I mean, four to five bottles of wine a night. And I didn't change the expression on my face. And I said, do you think it's a lot? And he said, well, I never drink while I'm on call. That's nice to know. Um, (laughs) But I mean, you know, he didn't come in with an addiction problem. He came in with a behavioral. And and I think this is what Kathleen sees a lot of. Yeah. You can't run a psychology practice without ending up with a a number of patients who have addiction issues of some sort. And, um, you know, it's pretty... Pretty, uh, it's, the problem is rampant. I mean, it's everywhere. Addiction right. of some sort or another. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as a pastor, I used to talk a lot about addiction. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, I would use, you know, biblical metaphors that are, I think, in the Old and New Testament for addiction and talk about addiction issues. Um. Why don't you explain a little bit about the, the, the difference between, say, a substance addiction? Like when I think of a substance addiction, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think of like alcohol, drugs, or food, something that you know, you're ingesting into your body or shooting into your body or something like that. And then I think about behavioral addictions, which might be gambling or sex or social media addictions or binge watching TV things or all kinds of uh, things that, that almost any behavior can become sort of obsessive compulsive and create problems for people. Um, what, what do you see as the, the difference between substance addiction and behavior addiction? How do they go together? How are they different? How, how, how do they affect the brain? Is there a difference between how they affect the brain, the dopamine systems, and all that kind of stuff? I'm just curious. I, I don't think there is a difference in the brain, but you're the, you're the addiction medicine guy. Is that right, George? Yeah, you know, um, so uh, a, a brief, very brief, uh, most of what we understand now, entirely different than 20 years ago, is based upon some very outstanding animal studies that have been reproduced, re- reproduced in people to show that dopamine and serotonin are the two drivers of our addictive behavior. Um, and the drive for dopamine, which affects a place in the middle of the brain called the nucleus acumens, and it's spelled just like it sounds, the nucleus acumens, it then sends messages to the rest of the brain, most particularly to the front of the brain, that disinhibits, I told you it would be technical, but it disinhibits your thinking pattern so that you normally, you would never grab a woman by the butt but you have a couple of drinks and the next thing you know is your hands are going where they don't belong. That sort of disinhibition um, it occurs with any kind of dopaminergic surge that impacts your, 
your neural centers in, the, in your brain. So it's easy to understand alcohol, but I think as Dr. Keenan points out, it can, your addiction can be anything. It can be solving a very complicated met, uh, uh, mathematical equation. It can be going and running a compul it can be biking, Fred. Stay away. Getting too close to home there. Right, right. <laughs> Talking about addictions. Um, <laughs> you know, and you know, take take a group of five or ten uh, kids that are between 15 and 18 and get them in a room and say, we're gonna take away your iPhones or your smartphones for a couple of hours and watch these kids go through withdrawal. Right. I mean, exactly the same thing as you get. They get agitated, they get nervous, they get irritable, they get cranky. I mean, just as if they were didn't have a cigarette or they didn't have their Adderall or they didn't have their fix. You know, it's a withdrawal. Yeah. So behavioral and substances are different in cost but I think, as Dr. Keenan points out, they're very, very similar. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Keenan, why don't you, like, what, when it comes to substance versus behavioral addictions, and you're dealing, you know, you're working on a uh, therapy treatment approach, how does that affect your approach? Is it different or is it the same? Well, I think, um, there's certain uh, certain addictions that I I refer to people who specialize in those. I don't treat people with sex addiction because there are people who specialize just in that and they're much better at it, and so I refer. But in general, um, the way I look at it is that um, Addictions generally get started because they offer either soothing or escape from emotions that we don't want to deal with, emotions that are unpleasant. And so I look, so we have to look at what are the emotions that the person is trying to escape from. And then another piece of that is it, it's often a vicious cycle. Um, they have emotions that are painful that they don't want to deal with. They can't, it's just too, too much, too hard to feel. So they escape or they seek some sort of comfort or soothing through, through a substance, through a behavior. Um, but it's some way to soothe themselves. And then they feel guilty about that. And then they start beating up on themselves and that inner critic takes a hold and starts you know, telling, telling you what a terrible person you are and that's wrong, bad. And then that just becomes one more thing that you need to escape from and need to be soothed from. And so you need to use, you go back to your addiction and it becomes a vicious cycle. So that's, that's what I work on is um, getting to, getting beneath the, you know, when, when a person first comes in with an addiction, Oftentimes their approach is, I have this, this bad habit and it has to be fixed. I'm bad. Help me get rid of it. And that's not the goal. The goal is not to get rid of it. The goal is to figure out where that behavior fits 
in the overall schema of their of their personality and the way they relate to themselves. What's the pain they're trying to avoid? Um, how are they um, uh, how are they loving or hating themselves because of this? And um, I try to help them bring uh, compassion and curiosity and and understanding to the whole process. Do you find that a lot of times there's some type of trauma, either little T trauma or big traumas that are rooted in some of these, or is it is it just uh, behaviors that we pick up along the way and we just start soothing and it just gets out of control because we've got the genes for addiction? Well, I, I think in my experience, most of the, almost all the time, there's there's trauma of some sort, and that's probably how those genes get tripped. I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. um, but trauma is often at the root of this, right? And what They're, kind? Yeah, d- describe traumas for people because I I've heard people use even you know because a lot of times we just think of big trauma, you know, like. Mm-hmm. A, sexual, you know, abuse as a kid or something like that. But there's a, there's mm-hmm. a lot of traumas that still trigger these things that are a lot like what well, I've heard somebody use the, the phrase small T traumas that like we wouldn't even think of them as a trauma, but they are. I mean, they, they affect us in that way, I think. I what Speak to that a little bit. Well, a trauma is something that overwhelms us emotionally to the point that we can't um, digest it in the normal way that we deal with feelings. Um, and you have to remember that what is overwhelming depends a lot on our age, our level of maturity, the defenses, the support we have, all of those kinds of things. Um, you can take a child and that has a trauma, but if they have a lot of loving adult support and that these people help them understand what's going on, help them articulate it, um, and process it, it, it doesn't end up being damaging. But um, it can be something rather small that happens to someone who doesn't have that kind of support, doesn't have anybody to talk to about it. It feels a lot of shame about it. Um, can you give an example yeah. along those lines? That's, uh, that's, yeah. the, that's a smaller variety that we wouldn't normally think is as traumatic. Okay, but this is, um, I've, ha- I've had a number of clients who um, had experiences of, say, transferring schools when they were in junior high school. And um, they get to the new school and they don't have any friends and they're bullied and they don't fit in. Um, y- you know, you don't think of that as being, um, you know, as bad as being raped or something like that. But these are dramas. These these are traumatic experiences for these kids. They are life-changing experiences that change their view of themselves and their view of the world. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's the first one that comes to yeah, mind. Yeah, that's um, a good one. I, I just uh, put out a fourth blog that I wrote, and I described, you know, I, I changed schools from kindergarten to first grade. Mm-hmm. And on my walk home every day in this new school, I got bullied by a third grader. And, there you and go. then I describe how my dad taught me to fight to deal with this uh, bully. Mm-hmm. And so, and but how that kind of played itself into, and I, I honestly, I would have never thought about that 
as a trauma. I, right. I would have just thought of it, you know, it's just a part of growing up. I mean, and I wouldn't have thought about exactly. it in a way that, that it, that it set into my brain pattern, certain pat, certain patterns that, that I literally carried with me until now. Right. Like, but I didn't ever think of it that way till, this is, till the last couple of years, honestly, dealing with all this stuff I've been dealing with. Yeah. This is one of the, the, the issues I have with clients all the time is, is, is getting them to see that these things are traumatic because they go, well, everybody goes through that. That's right. no big deal. You know, it happens all the time. They're looking at it from an adult point of view. Mm-hmm. And when it happened to you, you had the you you had the mentality and the defenses of a child, and that's an entirely different. You know, one of the things, Kathleen, that you may want to address that we see a lot of today are because it's so common are split families, oh. and, and and the divorces, uh, the death of a parent, uh, the abandonment, perceived abandonment by the loss of the first father and the new stepfather. These kinds of, particularly as children, uh, it's been my experience have been huge triggers. And I think that's a great mention that you call it a trigger because we know, for example, that if your dad or your first degree relative, mom, dad, brother, sister, has an alcohol problem, alcohol use disorder, which is what we call it today, then you will have a 50% chance of having an alcohol use disorder. Now, does that mean you're destined, you know, much like a a BRCA1 or BRCA2 to get breast cancer? No, it doesn't mean that. But if you have a trigger that hits you and you don't have the coping mechanism, that's when it comes, that's when it comes and and we see this all the time when i when i sit down and talk with these guys and gals you find out that they you know what they seemingly think was just like but everybody had the bullying when they were in school but not everybody had the same coping skills mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah i think those are those traumas that you mentioned are are easily passed off as not traumatic, right? And people don't, don't give much thought to how they might have hardwired their brain uh, and the triggers that are around that hardwiring, you know? That's right. We develop ways of managing those things that become fixed parts of our personality. And um, often they get us into trouble later. Yeah, it did me. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, interesting. Um, let's talk a minute about uh, spirituality. I mean, because I, I read in the big book that about 50% of the people who land in a 12-step program are atheist or agnostic. And so because of this, the there's a whole chapter written to the agnostic in, in the big book. And, and yet, it seems like spirituality plays 
and a very important role in recovery. And, and so I'm, I, I'd love to hear the two of you speak to that issue. How, how does spirituality play a role in recovery, and even particularly for those that might not think of themselves as, uh, you know, tied to a particular religious tradition? Kathleen, why don't you? Okay. Well, I think um, <clears throat> I th- I think spirituality is an innate part of us. Religion is something else. Religion is something you choose to uh, adapt, uh, adopt, or whatever. But uh, I think we all have a spiritual nature, and it, it gets and it can get expressed in different ways. And so, what I try to do is help people. Um, find a, a way of expressing and experiencing their own spirituality that's, that's compatible to their uh, thinking, that's comfortable for them. But it's, it's, it's a way of connecting with something bigger than yourself. And I think that that's really important um, to have, to be able to connect with something bigger than yourself when you're dealing with an addiction, well, in life, period, but especially when you're when you're dealing with an addiction. So I try to help people find this something bigger than the, myself that feels um, comfortable and compatible to them. Okay. You know, you know Fred, it's uh, you've been in our group and you've heard some of the people speak of their sort of newfound spirituality and and you know people who will say you know god was frankly never in my life i mean mom and dad used to go to church but it god really didn't play a role and then as they get sober and they see how what i would say how the spirit has come upon them but how they have turned over the control of their lives to a higher power. Because when I say to them, when they say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not into this turning things over to somebody else. You know, I, I, I want to be in control. To which I say, how's it been working out for you? You know? Right. Exactly. And, and, and it's sort of a smart-ass answer, but they recognize that, you know, you, there are times in life when you need to let somebody else walk with you and, and, and guide you and take your hand. That's the key to recovery. You can't do it yourself. What do you think, Kathleen? I agree. Yeah. And that reminds me that when we were, George and I were just chatting earlier today, um, and one of the things that we were talking about is you can't do it by yourself. It takes a village. It not only takes um, spirituality, but it takes it takes people. It takes a community. It takes um, other people supporting you. And uh, yeah, that's important. It, 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 it's so much fun to watch guys who are very macho suddenly try to figure out how they're going to call another guy for a date. <laughs> it has nothing to do with sex, but it has to do with pulling him up so oh, we can get together and, and be together because that's what we all crave. We all crave the warmth, 
the spirituality of, of the fellowship of others. And, and, you know, one of the fun things in sobriety is you, you find other people who are just as longing for love and as longing for sobriety as you are. Yeah, that's, that's great. So let's take somebody who maybe the God thing is a turnoff to them. They don't want to have anything to do with God or Jesus or the Bible or whatever, or whatever, whatever that might, what format, you know, what religion that might take. But how do you help, how do you help them realize that there's still a spiritual path for them that can help them in recovery? How, how have you, I'm sure you've had a lot of experience with that. Bumping into I, I folks have who kind of have a, go ahead. No, I was going to say they, they can find out what their higher power is. It doesn't have to be Jesus or Allah or, um, you know, uh, one of the, one of the other gods, it, it can be something else. It can be the fellowship of the group. Uh, the higher power is the fellowship. I mean, uh, there are AA groups that are specifically formed for atheists and for agnostics. Much as there are AA groups for LGBTQT, you know, I mean, there, there are all sorts of AA groups. And obviously, they're more some of the more radical or different kinds are out in the West Coast. But, you know, there are, there are people who are accepting of anything. You don't have to say the Lord's Prayer. You don't have to believe in Christ. What you do, need to do is open your heart and just let yourself feel. That's very tough, um, particularly when you're so vulnerable. But atheists and agnostics... AA is not an issue. Um, you need to find a place where you can be comfortable. You don't have to say the Lord's Prayer. Um, you don't have to, you know, be a Christian for sure. There are a lot of Jewish people in AA, and for that matter, Muslim uh, people in AA. And Buddhism and... and, and absolutely. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I think the group is a is a first step for a lot of people in spirituality that, that they can find that the group is bigger than them. It's loving, it's caring that that can become a very important, I think, spiritual step for people that, mm -hmm. that really begins to open them up to this idea that they're, they need, they need help outside themselves. And that can be yeah. a, can be a great first step. We're wired for community. I really agree with that, George, and that that has to be a part. You know, sharing your emotions and your feelings with a group of people that love you and care for you and that aren't going to judge you, um, that's such a huge part of our spirituality, that 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 community. And having, I, a, safe, I, it, having it, a safe place to do that. It's a, it's a turn on for me to watch these guys who are really solid, masculine, macho guys turn to another guy and say, I love you. I mean, it's like, wow. I mean, it has nothing to do with sex. It has to do with, you know, I mean, the Greeks did a much better job of talking about the type, various types of love. But I mean, 
you know, this is this is not, uh, you know, something that is is ugly. It's something. It's very beautiful. That's good. I'm curious what you've been working now with addicts for over a decade, almost two decades. Um, what are what are some of your big takeaways that that you think would be important for the whole rest of the world to know about that say wouldn't ever consider themselves as a substance addict or big addict or whatever what 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 are some takeaways for the general population that wouldn't view themselves as addicts that you think it would be would be important for them to know and understand i'm just curious kathleen and i talked about just that topic before we came in go ahead kathleen well that's where i was going to say it takes a village but i think you're asking a little bit different question are you saying um, they might have some addiction issues themselves? Is that I? So my personal opinion is that most everybody struggles with some kind of addiction issue at different mm-hmm. points in their life, right? Right. You know, but no, I'm I'm kind of more or less thinking of some of the bigger takeaway. Like, like I think there's a lot of people that would think about addicts like you guys did. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with those people. And now, right. now you've been working with them for almost two decades. What are, what are some big takeaways that you think the whole world could learn from the work that you've been doing, even the people that would not even want to have anything to do with addicts? You know, those, I guess that's... They are us. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah, so, they are us. So I mean, explain you, that, because people don't, don't think that. I mean, if, if, you, if you don't think that there's a lot of addiction around... You, you've been, you know, you've been doing the ostrich maneuver and burying your head. It's all around. And there are lots and lots of people who have, who are closet drinkers. I mean, people don't go around getting sloshed, but they have no difficulty having five or six drinks in a night just to relax. And incidentally, you know, they gave, I, I took some pills from a friend of mine. It makes her sleep much better. And she's not anxious at all now. And she gave me a bunch of her pills, so I've been taking them. Um, and it's not just older people. Uh, I work with medical students, as Kathleen does. You would be flabbergasted at the number of kids in graduate school and in medical school who are sharing pills. That doesn't really happen. It does happen. It, it does happen, and it's not because they want to be addicts. It's because, you know, there's nothing like having a little Adderall before you take your exam. So you borrow it from the guy, ne- and the first time you tell the second, and after that, you get your own prescription by recognizing you have ADHD, too, <laughs> or you have anxiety, and you'll find a doctor who will write a prescription. So to answer your question, Fred, um, the, the take-home message is if, if you think you have a problem or if you think you know somebody has a problem, talk, talk to somebody early. You don't have to make a commitment. It's not like dialing a phone number and giving your name, rank, and serial number. But don't let it go. Don't let it go. Because problems unaddressed only get worse. Or as we say in New York City, worster. Um, you know, I mean, they go from 
bad to worse to worster, you know. Kathleen, you know what I'd like you to show? Fred, could you let me put a, a, a chart up? Can you give me a, a share? Can I do that? It, while he, while, yeah, while he's doing that, Kathleen, I'm, I, so I've, you know, because I'm putting my story out right now through blogs and mm -hmm. videos, I've had a number of people reach out to me. Just had a few meetings recently with people who themselves were wondering if they needed help. Like, am I an addict? I'm not sure if I am. Am I on the border? Am I getting into trouble? What are some danger signs that would help somebody do a little bit of self-evaluation in terms of... You know. Well, in general, yeah, that's a good question. In general, we we look at is it affecting um, your relationships? Is it affecting your work? Is it affecting your ability to think and solve problems? Is it affecting um, your ability to, to to function in any of the the major? Is it changing you in any way? And if if it is, then it's it's something to look at. Um, and I think that if you can avoid being ashamed and pathologizing yourself, but just, I want to check into this. I want to learn more about it, um, is a good, is a good way to approach it. Um, and to realize how common it is, as George said. And another thing I was going to say when you asked the question originally was, the people need to understand that there's a there's a difference between the the um, the person and the disease. Um, very very good people can do some things that are not so good when they have addiction. All right. Yeah. I think that's true. So yeah, I'm seeing this. Um, I'm seeing this now, George. So you well, see, Kathleen, I'll let you talk yeah, through this. Talk through. What's it called again? State the <laughs> stages of change. Okay. And when when people come to us um, with a, a, an addiction problem or a suspected addiction problem. What what we what we try to do is move them from wherever they are now to the next stage on the on the diagram. So if if they have no clue at all, they think there's no way that there's anything wrong. Um, you try to get them to be a little bit more uh, aware, be curious about. Um, how this behavior is affecting their lives and, and to um, just to be more insightful about it, get some distance from it, be, be curious. And then eventually maybe to start thinking about what maybe could I do about it, investigating um, where, where are the options and then from there, you, you pick an option and you you make a commitment to choosing some way that you're going to try to modify the behavior. And then we go around to, and then assuming it's successful, you go to maintenance and then um, sometimes there's relapse. 
But the idea is to move people step by step through this um, through these phases until they get to recovery, till they get to being able to the point where they're able to commit to a program of recovery. Because the person that walks in your office and says, you know, my wife says that I, I, I drink too much. I'm not so sure. Maybe I do, but I don't think so. That person is not ready to hear you need to go to treatment. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're still rash. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but they might be ready to hear, well, what do you think? Why don't you start writing down how many drinks you have? Why don't you start paying attention to how does it affect your sleep? Uh, pay attention to what your mood like the next day after you've had these five drinks. Um, pay attention. Start noticing how it affects your interaction with your wife and your kids. Just notice. We're not asking him to make any changes at all. Just to just to notice, and that can be very powerful. Yeah. So I I was thinking like so a part of this is like self reflection for somebody yes. who's actually wondering, do I have a problem? Because a lot of people, you know, are actually having a real problem and they're reflecting on, do I really have a real problem? Right. And that's that's really good for them. I also have, you know, the parents of children, of adult children sometimes, or friends or a family member who pretty much knows that the other person has an addiction problem. But they really don't know what to, how they can help in the process of, you know, they don't know how to help that person a lot of times. They, they don't know whether to harp on them or whether to, you know, confront them or how, how, what's the best thing other people can do if they, if they have a friend or a family member that's in trouble and they, they can see it, but they don't know how to reach out and help that person? Yeah. <laughs> We, 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 uh, we share the 16-year-old child of a physician um, that we were able to address this question. And this was a very bright young man, but had been in a family with other, you know, older brothers and totally defiant, um, using drugs, sneaking out windows, you know, doing what all 16-year-old boys do that are unbridled. And uh, the family did not know what to do. Um, and Kathleen and I conspired and uh, were able to get this young man into a treatment facility, um, and which incidentally involved the parents so that they understood how to deal with this. Um, so adolescents are a little bit different than, than uh, older people. Right. Physicians are very easy because they all want a license. Right. And you, you make it very clear to them, you don't have to follow what we're saying. You can do it your own way, but oh, incidentally, you're not going to be practicing medicine. Right. That, that sort of, for people like attorneys, bankers, uh, real estate chiefs. Uh, I have a corporate CEO I work with. You know, the constraints are not the same. And it really depends upon what sort of strength they have in their families. 
and uh, whether you can get them to sit down and talk to Kathleen Keenan or a Kathleen Keenan equivalent. She really doesn't take care of all of Kansas City, but um, but there, you know, but not everybody, not all therapists are equally talented. Uh, that's not a pejorative; it's just a fact of dealing with because these are very difficult clients. Yes. You have a um, <clears throat> an adult child or, or an adult friend or just a friend that you are worried about. I think one of the you know you, you ask what do you do? I think well one thing you don't do is shame them, um, nag them, tell them how bad this is going to be. Um, you're turning out to be just like your uncle George, and you know what happened to him. Um, that kind of thing. Um, I think it's to express express loving concern, to talk about your own feelings. I, I, I'm, I'm worried. I feel um, scared when I see this happen, name the behavior. And um, I, uh, I would love for you to, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I'd love for you to to talk to somebody and check this out because um, I care about you because I love you. And, and that's Kathleen is giving away one of her secrets. And the secret is to use the word I, uh, not you, but I, you know, I obviously, I obviously am worried about you. I'm concerned. I love you very much. I want I, 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 mm -hmm. not you need to you, 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 because when it's you, the person has to defend themselves. Right. When it's I, they feel much more compassionate about understanding that it's not about them. It's about you. That's good. I think that's such a challenging point for so many people. And because you do want to help, you care, you love these people deeply, and yet you feel so stuck. Like oh, there's just nothing yeah. to do. And I think that's that's about as, I think, you know, other than prayer and care, but reaching out with I statements, you know, this is how I feel, this is how I'm responding, and I care about you. And would you consider getting curious and talking? You know that that right. that's a fairly easy step compared to the shame approach. Exactly. Definitely, everybody's already dealing with that, right? We're already buried in shame. Right. I think that's that's really helpful. Yep. That's helpful. Well, we are uh, are I think are at a good place to sort of wrap this up. Or do you have any final comments that you'd like to make? There there'll be people listening into this from you know, anywhere from people who are struggling with issues themselves all the way to people who are friends and family members of people who are struggling. We're in COVID right now. I've been looking at some of the CDC reports and a lot of these, you know, issues of substance abuse and anxiety and depression and suicide ideation are up 26 to 40 percent right. in the last 10 months of COVID. You know, do you have any like final comments that you'd like to make to our audience? Well, I'll, I'll say something and then I'll let Kathleen close out. But, you know, isolation 
which is what we're doing all the time these days. Isolation is one of the biggest triggers for people getting themselves into rabbit holes. Um, and when you try to restrain yourself from having relationships and you don't know how or don't are not able to share with someone else, it, it makes your stressors much, much greater, as you point out, Fred. Um, and so, you know, the COVID-19 is a, is a fantastic challenge. Um, and you're exactly right. The UK has some of the best data and it shows that people who were in abstinence have a, a, a larger recidivism rate and the people who are alcoholics are drinking more. Uh, that's kind of the best data we have so far in the UK. Um, but insomnia and anxiety are the two big things that are now causing problems. And if you can't sleep, it brings on all sorts of ugliness, crankiness, mood changes, and makes your anxiety worse. So early, early help is so helpful. Um, don't be afraid to ask somebody anonymously, what, what should I do? Where should I go? Um, and, you know, there, there are people out there to help you. What do you think, well, Dr. Keenan? No, I think the thing I want to say, I'm, I'm really doesn't have anything to do with COVID or only tangentially is, People, uh, generally speaking, when they have uh, addiction, are, are very afraid. They're afraid to get help. They're afraid to give up their drug of choice. Or uh, they're, they're, It feels like death. It feels like <clears throat> life as I know it will be over if I do this. And what I want to say is that there is so much joy on the other side of this, um, the, the, the very best people I know are addicts in recovery um, because they have done the work. They've, they've dug inside themselves. They've looked at their, their issues. They've found the spirit within them. They've struggled with their demons. And the joy and the freedom that you get when you do that is just phenomenal. And it's so, so worth it. So that's what I want to say. It's just so worth it. And I think I know somebody that can testify to that. Yeah. Um, who has a big microphone in front of him. Right. Because he is such an awesome, he was an awesome pastor before, but a, an even more awesome pastor now. Well, I think that gives hope to people who are struggling, who are facing addictions, um, that it's not the end of your life, even though it f might feel like death if you give something up like that, but that the good work that goes through it and the good support systems that are out there. I'm so thankful for you guys that, uh, you know, just the, uh, the love and care that you've given me, but those support systems are there if people reach out. And if you're listening right now uh, and you're in trouble, I'd encourage you, reach out. And there are networks available that can connect you, that can get you the right help. 
and there's hope on the other side. And I love that comment that you make about how I, I've heard you say it about physicians that physicians who work through these issues can be better physicians because yes. they have high, higher sensitivity to the needs of people. Mm-hmm. Pastors that go through this are better <laughs> pastors. People that go through this are better people because you have found out. I mean, we have a dentist in our group who you know who was divorced when his drug habit became uncontrollable and he's now back with his wife and he said, you know, it's better than any any life I had with my wife beforehand. I am so glad I was a drug addict. I, I yeah. mean, that's the bizarreness of the whole thing. Right. I would never want to be a drug addict, but I'm so glad I was a drug Right. Yes. Well, thank you so much for uh, being on this podcast. And thanks to all of you who are listening and tuning in. Uh, Dr. George Haymack and Dr. Kathleen Keenan, I, I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for taking your time and sharing with uh, this audience. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, friend. Harvey Media Production.